Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and we are continuing our journey through Luther's Large Catechism. And I know I've made a couple statements um, previous episodes about not hitting all 87 uh, lines that Luther has in this uh, write-out on the Lord's Supper. And truthfully, I haven't even decided as I'm recording this portion of this series whether I want to actually go through all of them. I was thinking as I was coming down to the studio, I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll just hit them all because I think they're crucial. And, and seeing as we don't have a ton of content in terms of the Lord's Supper versus baptism, uh, I want to, you know, have an, a, you know, a few shows surrounding the content that we do have. And so more than likely, we will probably make ourselves through all this, even if it takes three episodes to do that. Uh, and again, very much like last week, I don't want to just be reading this and then and then just being drowned on and on and on for you because you'll get bored, you'll turn off the show, and you'll you know go do something else. What I'm hoping to do is read some lines, add some commentary, discuss some stuff, and move on to the next statement. And so I think that's probably the easiest way to go about it, and I think that uh, hopefully you've liked last week's episode, and I really hope you've enjoyed this series on the Lord's Supper. It's a little bit different than we did on baptism, whereas we've got such competing stances on baptism. And the interesting thing with that is how how people have really just kind of dug themselves into their trenches, and they will not budge an ounce. And the Lord's Supper is not quite as attacked, if you would, by... Uh, by the groups that don't quite understand it. And because it's one of those things that's just kind of like eh, brushed off to the side. It shows up in one passage in the Gospels, whether you're reading it out of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There's just a few verses. Uh, Mark, Matthew's the <clears throat> preferred uh, Lord's Supper, inst- words of institution that we use as Lutherans. Uh, we go to Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. So it's only three verses. And Whereas with like baptism, for instance, we have so many verses throughout 
uh, all of the New Testament, we've got, uh, we, we start with the baptism of Jesus. In fact, we could probably even discuss the baptism that John gave. Then we go to Jesus, and then we uh, move into uh, his death, and we have to distinguish between the thief on the cross and baptism. And then we move to the uh, Great Commission, which institutes baptism as a sacrament. Then we go into Acts, and we have numerous passages through the book of Acts. And then we go to Paul's letters, we have numerous passages through Paul's letters. And so with baptism, there's, there's a lot of material and, and, and there's a lot of writing outside of scripture from the early church fathers through the reformation and that baptism was a big, big thing. And so I, and even in those like nine or 10 episodes we did, we certainly, certainly did not exhaust the topic. And, and look, I know many people uh, don't agree with me. In fact, I actually had somebody DM me yesterday and he expressed based upon a story that I had in my stories on Instagram and expresses that he doesn't agree with my position. And I said, that's fine. You don't have to agree with my position, but I'm looking at scripture. This is what scripture tells me. I'm looking at the early church fathers. This is what they tell me. And I was not shocked uh, by his response, but he says, I would, I agree with such people as John MacArthur and other Baptists on this subject. And I was like, um, okay. So I just gave him a thumbs up. I'm like, I'm not here to debate you. I'm like, if you want to be, you know, in agreement with John MacArthur, who in my opinion is great historical theologian, but he has really bad practical theology. Uh, I also don't agree with his position on the eschatology that he holds to, which is a dispensationalist. He calls himself leaky dispensationalist, but he's quite dispensational in all of his beliefs. But I'm not here to bash on MacArthur. Like I said, with a lot of respect for the man. He's been preaching for so many years, and he he's a brilliant, brilliant theologian. I just don't agree with some of his stuff, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, there's there's many theologians that I respect. I just don't agree with. There are many theologians that I respect and I agree with on a lot of things, but on some things I don't. In fact, there's even some in the Lutheran circles that I don't agree with fully. But the Lutheran theology for me is quite interesting because uh, I was really skeptic, and I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail here really quick, but I was really skeptical at first um, about some of the aspects of the Lutheran faith. And it really just took me spending time listening to my professors explain things, reading Lutheran theology, and then and comparing that all under the light of Scripture. And the more I've kind of dug into it, the more I've really just fully accepted it. Uh, I, I certainly can say I don't believe in some of the positions that like Philip Melanchthon held to after Luther died. And then we start to see a softening of language in the Lutheran faith. Uh, there's many theologians that have come up in the Lutheran circles that may just take some things a little bit too far or not far enough. Or they might just be kind of like uh, missing that full connection. And, and that happens, right? No, no train of thought, no theology, denominational uh, train is is perfect. So it's perfectly okay to have disagreements because what I've come across in scripture most often is our hermeneutics are fully uh, impacted by how we read scripture and the life around us and the things that we witness. Now, you can't allow the things around you to change what the text says or to change your or, or to make you feel better about certain things because let's face it, there are people who especially in the, the prosperity movement, who will take passages of scripture and, and just absolutely distort it 
and and even those who are not quite in the prosperity movement, you know, but are on the fringe, like a Stephen Furtick or Michael Todd, they use scripture to to push the selfism uh, motion that is being brought in heavy into the Christian mainstream circles right now, and they will drive that home. If you watch any of their sermons, that's the key, and so. Again, we're just getting off rabbit trail. I, I got so much that I literally can rant on with that kind of content. But all that to say, you know, I, I have accepted the confessional Lutheran position reading the Book of Concord. I like how it's structured. I like how it explains things. Uh, I've come to accept based upon how Scripture has been revealed to me through the Holy Spirit as I read the text and God illuminates it for me. I personally and... Um, and corporately within my church have found my footing. I've found where God has led me to. And for me, it's the Lutheran faith. And, and look, I got many friends who are Baptist, many friends who are Presbyterian, who are non-denominational, Anglican, uh, Methodist, and we don't agree on everything. In fact, Anthony, who, who uh, him and I co-host uh, Matter of Truth, we don't agree on everything, but we're still brothers in Christ. And we still find common ground and we still can have discussions around things that we disagree about. And that to me is a more focused measure of unity within the church than, um, than just simply, you know, putting up the dividing wall and say, Oh, if you don't believe this and you're not a Christian, or if you don't believe this and we, we don't want to have any association with you. And I find that to be extraordinarily troubling. So anyways, all of that, we've got Luther's large catechism. We've got some more lines we're going to do. And we're going to read through it. And, and one of the reasons I brought up the MacArthur thing earlier in that, in that comment about baptism and all that, uh, I have some major disagreements with how John reads uh, through Matthew 26. In fact, we're going to have an episode dedicated to that passage through his study Bible and his notes because I want to really uh, stress some, some differences. And, and it is a disagreement that I have with him. And I think that's okay and it's healthy, but I want to explain why Lutherans do not agree with that particular position. And that's a position that's held by many in the church today. So uh, Lutherans find themselves in the minority when it comes to the sacraments because most people, especially in non-denominationals or other kind of movements, uh, really view the sacraments in kind of a low, lower ordinance level. And, and so I, I really want to stress the major differences between the Lutheran faith and the Protestant, Reformed, uh, non-denominational Protestant movements because it helps to distinguish why we hold to certain things when maybe some of these other circles don't. And I think a lot of it goes back to the Luther and Zwingli debate, which we talked about on this series uh, a few episodes ago surrounding the 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 simple word is is this the body of christ and luther highly stressed it. in fact i actually even had another conversation with somebody who told me that lutherans and luther in particular <clears throat> was way off the deep end when he had this debate with zwingli well and it's funny because zwingli wanted to change the definitions he wanted to say that it that this passage is a representation which would then change the words and change God's word. And then through the line of Zwingli's teaching, we develop into what's the, you know, now the Anabaptist movement. And that actually originated really quickly within the Zwingli uh, camp to which 
as you, if you listen to the Augsburg series so far, we've talked highly about how the Anabaptists are condemned by the Lutheran theologians. And so it's a, it, it's a battle, you know, they're, they're, these were, these were huge debates back in the 1500s. And, and I think we've, we've kind of brushed it aside for the most part. And we've uh, allowed ourselves to be catered to by more modern theologians versus looking to what the Reformation says and then looking to what uh, the early church fathers said. And again, I'm getting way off on, on a rabbit trail, but I really want to stress the fact that if we want to know what the early church fathers said and what the reformers said, then we need to go and read their works. We shouldn't. We, we can read commentary on their works. We can read um, biographies on them. We can read uh, accounts of, based upon their theology, and that's all well and fine. But to truly authentically get to the very core of what they taught and believed, we have to read what they wrote. And and I think it, it pays us a disservice if all we're doing is reading third-party you know, modern theologians who are influenced by other modern theologians when they're writing their, you know, up on on a particular reformer, especially Luther, who gets attacked in this manner all the time saying, and people will cherry pick him and say, well, you know, he thought this and he taught that, and this is completely wrong because my presuppositional says it is. And so anyways, just a rant and uh, let's get into the large catechism here. Uh, we're at statement 23. This is what Luther writes. He says, therefore, it is appropriately called the food of the soul since it nourishes and strengthens the new man. While it is true that through baptism, we are first born anew, our human, fla- our human flesh and blood have lost their old skin. There are so many hindrances and temptations of the devil that the world uh, and the world that we often grow weary and faint and at times even stumble. The Lord's Supper is given as a daily food and substance so that our faith may refresh and strengthen itself and not weaken in the struggle, but grow continuously stronger for the new life be the one continually develops and progresses. Meanwhile, it must suffer much, much opposition. The devil is a furious enemy when he sees that we resist him and attack the old man. And when he cannot rout us by force, he sneaks and skulks about everywhere, trying all kinds of tricks and does not stop until he has finally worn us out that we either renounce our faith or yield hand and foot and become indifferent or impatient for such times when our hearts feel too solely sorely pressed this comfort of the lord's supper is given to bring us new strength and refreshment statement 28 here again our clever spirits contort themselves with with their great learning and wisdom, bellowing and blustering, how can bread and wine forgive sins or strengthen faith? Yet they know that we do not claim this of the bread and wine, since it is itself bread and wine. But the bread and the wine, which are Christ's body and blood, and which the words are coupled, these and no other, we say, are the treasure through which forgiveness is obtained. This treasure is conveyed and communicated to us in no other way than through the words given and poured out for you. Here you have both truths. This is Christ's body and blood, that these are yours and your treasure and gift. Christ's body can never be unfruitful, vain thing, impotent, and useless. Yet, however great the treasure may be itself, it must be comprehended in the word and offered 
to us through the word, otherwise we can never know of it or seek it. Therefore, it is absurd to say that Christ's body and blood are not given or poured out for us in the Lord's Supper, and hence that we uh, that we cannot have forgiveness in the sins of sacrament in the sacrament, although the work has accomplished and forgiveness of sins is acquired on the cross, yet it cannot come to us in any other way than through the word. How should we know that this is accomplished and offered to us if it were not proclaimed by preaching by oral word? Whence do we know of forgiveness? How can they grasp and, appre- and appropriate it? except by steadfast believing in the scriptures and the gospel. So I want to pause here and, and kind of talk about these previous statements and a couple of things that stick out to me, how Luther is uh, very adamant about receiving the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. He wants to have it almost, a, it seems like, a daily meal for the Christian. And I think that's totally fine because, as Luther even states, we need the gospel every day because we forget it. So we need the Lord's Supper as often as possible. Now, I made this statement in our Bible study, which if you're interested in joining us for the Bible study, we're going to actually start going uh, sometime in September, I think, going every week. Um, And uh, we're going to go every Sunday night. Now, I made this statement in in, in that Bible study that we're in Romans 8 and how different it is for Christians today than it was 500 years ago. Because when Luther preached, it would, would be a, you know, a, a plethora of sermons every week. He would preach the Old Testament book from the Psalms and a New Testament passage. And he did that five, six days, seven days a week. He preached continuously. And I you know, made the, the equation the equivalent that even John Calvin, John Knox, and all the other reformers did this. Getting even to the time with uh, Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon preached um, you know, countless sermons in his lifetime. You know, I figure, uh, if I, if I preach 52, uh, Sundays a month, right? 52 a month. And I'm going to preach, let's say for 30 years, that's 1500 sermons and, you know, give or take, cause I'll probably take vacations and stuff. But if I preach between, uh, I was 34 when I got the job, but you know, in, in 65, I'll have 1500 sermons under my belt. Whereas like Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and all of them had north of seven or eight or nine thousand sermons preached, and so we pale a comparison today because we have so many other obstacles and things that have kind of broached our attention have taken us away from the things that are crucial. That is hearing the gospel. I demonstrated that in the Martha and Mary parable or the Martha and Mary story, and then the parable of the rich farmer uh, that I've preached in previous Sundays. Statement 32, now the whole gospel and the article of the creed, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins are embodied in this sacrament and offered to us through the word. Why then should we allow this treasure to be torn out of the sacrament? Our opponents must still confess that these are the very words in which we hear elsewhere and everywhere in the gospel. They can say that these words in the sacrament are of no value, just as little as they dare to say the whole gospel or the word of God apart from the sacrament is of no value. So we hear, so far we have treated the sacrament from the standpoint both of its essence and its effect and benefit. It remains to us to consider who it is that receives this power and benefit. Briefly, as we've said above concerning baptism and in other places, the answer is, it is he 
who believes that the words of uh, the words say and what they give, for they are not spoken or preached to stone and wood, but those who hear them. To those whom Christ says, take and eat. And because he offers and promises forgiveness of sins, it cannot be received except by faith. This faith he himself demands in the word. When he says, given for you and poured out for you, as if he had said, this is why I give it and bid you to eat and drink, that you may take it as your own and enjoy it. So we're going to look at this a little bit closer here. This is a interesting kind of change of pace because this would 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 essentially put a, a kind of a lock and key, if you would, on the Lord's Supper because it's not just freely given to everybody regardless of their faith proclamation. It's not given to unbelievers. It's not given to people of other faith, such as the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus, uh, even the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. They, you know, it 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 blocks them from that. Why? Because the Lord's Supper must be taken with faith. And when we abuse that, and we, as we looked at Paul's letter and his warning to the church in Corinth, if we abuse that promise, then we are eating and drinking to our own damnation. And so if you do not have faith that these words say and what they give, which is forgiveness and salvation, if you do not believe these words, then you don't, you shouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, it gets into this whole interesting thing on open communion, closed communion. And depending on where you come from and what denomination, some denominations are wide open and they don't care and or set a prerequisite on your belief. Then there's others that, like for, the, for instance, the Missouri uh, Senate Lutherans would say, if you are not a Missouri Senate Lutheran, then you cannot partake in the communion within those churches. Um, we are not quite as closed, but we're not quite as open either. We make the proclamation to all who are there and, and people who come to my church are Lutherans and they are members of my church. But if I had somebody who comes in off the street and, and is sat under my sermon and preach and then comes up, I would be very, I'd be hesitant to give them the sacrament because if I am unfamiliar with them, then they, I need to have a discussion with them. I need to know where they stand because if they're just eating and drinking to follow the crowd, then they're doing so for their own damnation. And so belief is a big thing. In fact, I actually had some Roman Catholics uh, who were uh, family members of a family that attends our church. They came, I believe it was Easter Sunday. I'm not, I can't remember what Sunday it was, but it was a communion Sunday. We, We did communion on Easter this year. And they, they did not come up and partake in the sacrament. And that's totally fine because they have, a, they have a different view of the Lord's Supper than we do. And so you get into this interesting kind of debate and whether communion should be closed, opened, or restricted. And we're kind of in a semi-restricted mood mode in our, in our church. <clears throat> and because, uh, statement 34, and because he offers the promise and promises forgiveness of sins that cannot re- be ex- uh, received except by faith. This is the paramountal statement. This is this is what matters when it comes to understanding the Lord's Supper. If you take this by faith, knowing what Christ has told you and understanding the promise, and at even its most elementary level, 
that this is Christ's body and Christ's blood given for you for the forgiveness of sins. If that's the most basic understanding you have of the Lord's Supper, then by all means come and partake. But if you reject any of that, if you reject that this is the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, if you reject that forgiveness of sins can come, then why bother taking it? That's my question to you. So whoever, statement 35, whoever lets these words be addressed to him and believes that they are true has what the words declare. But he who does not believe has nothing. For he lets this gracious blessing be offered to him in vain and refuses to enjoy it. The treasure is opened and placed at everyone's door, yes, upon everyone's table. But it is also your responsibility to take it and confidently believe that is just as the words tell you. This now is the preparation required for a Christian for receiving the sacrament worthily. Since this treasure is fully offered in the words, it cannot be grasped and appropriated by any heart or only by the heart. Such a gift and an eternal treasure cannot be seized with the hand. So that's statement 36. I'm going to jump down to statement 39. In conclusion, now that we have the right interpretation of the doctrine and the doctrine of the sacrament, there is a great need also for the admonition and a treaty that's uh, so great a treasure, which is daily administered and distributed among Christians, may not heedlessly be passed by. What I mean is that those who claim to be Christians should prepare themselves to receive the sacrament frequently. Now, this this statement to me is, is absolutely profound because if we want to call ourselves Christian, and especially Lutherans, because this is Luther's writings. This is straight out of the large catechism. If we want to call ourselves that, then then why would we balk at the idea of having the sacrament frequently? Now, I understand it requires more work, and we got to have people who help administer the, the Lord's Supper, and we have to have people who set up the cups and set up the, the bread and who bake the bread and get the wine and all that stuff. I get it. I totally do. But if that if, if if it took me to do all of the work in my church in order for the sacrament to be done two or three times a month, I or even every Sunday, I would do it. And in fact, if you wanted to come in on a Wednesday and sit with me in the office and talk with me and you wanted the sacrament, I would give it to you on Wednesday. I would give it to you on Thursday. I'd give it to you on Friday. Because it's a gift of of refreshment and nourishment, as Luther has stated over and over in this large catechism. Taking and eating this renews you. It brings you back into the, the fold of Christianity. Now, it, you don't leave it ever without disbelief. But if you just kind of slowly drift and you get lost in your own selfish ways, which happens quite frequently for Christians, we backslide, we fall into temptation, we fall into sin. This sacrament is so crucial because it brings us back in. It aligns us mentally. Now, uh, we decided last year, and we and it worked really well uh, when as we did it, and we we stopped doing it at Christmas. But uh, I am going to uh, kind of push forward that we do it through the school year, and, the, and my council was supporting it that we do the communion twice a month, first and third Sunday, and and hope. And I think I've even joked about it that I would, if I could, I would do this every week, and the church I don't think would be opposed to that, and. Uh, but I want to, but I want to really, you know, stress the importance of the, of what the sacrament does, because we can't just ignore that has any benefits when, when the, the reformers 
and the early church fathers and the uh, apostles wrote about it. Even Luke in chapter two of Acts writes about how the Christians came together. And I think it was chapter two, it might've been chapter four. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Luke in the book of Acts writes how Christians came together and broke bread on a regular basis. And so we see that throughout the early church and we see that constructed in the early church liturgies that they had communion quite often. And now it seems to be something that's pushed to the back burner because we want to, we want to look at more of a more quote unquote modern interpretation of the passage. And uh, so let's continue on. We've got a handful of uh, statements here. I'd like to get through in the next couple of minutes. So we'll get through these and then we'll pause for today. Uh, Statement 40. So, we see that men becoming listless and lazy about its obser- observation. A lot of people who heard the gospel now that the Pope's nonsense has been abolished and are free from his oppression and authority, let a year or two or three or more years go by without receiving the sacrament, as if they were such strong Christians that they have no need of it. Some let themselves be kept and deterred, from it because we have taught that no one should go unless he feels a hunger and thirst impelling him to to it. So pretend that it is a matter of liberty, not of necessity, that it is enough that we simply that it is enough if they simply believe. Thus the majority go so far that they have become quite barbarous and ultimately despise both the sacrament and the word of God. Now it is true we repent uh, we, I'm sorry. Now it is true we repeat that no one who should under any circumstances be coerced or compelled, lest we institute a new slaughter of souls. Nevertheless, let it be understood that people who abstain or, abs- or absent themselves from the sacrament over a long period of time are not to be considered Christians. Let me repeat that. Nevertheless, let it be understood that people who abstain or absent themselves from the sacrament over a long period of time are not to be considered Christians. Christ did not institute it to be a treaty merely as a spectacle, but commands his Christians to eat and drink, thereby remain. remember him. Indeed, true Christians who cherish and honor the sacrament will, of their own accord, urge and impel themselves to come, however in order that the common people and weak uh, who are who are like to be Christians may be induced to see the reason and this and the need for receiving the sacrament we shall devote a little attention to this point statement 44 as in other matters pertaining to faith love and patience it is not enough to simply to teach and instruct but there must be daily exhortation so on this subject we must persist be persistent in teaching, lest people become indifferent and bored. For we know from experiences that the devil always sets himself against this in every other Christian activity, hounding and driving people from as much as he can. In the first place, we have clear text from the words of Christ, do this in remembrance of me. These are the words of precept and command, enjoining all who would be Christians to partake in the sacrament, they are the words addressed to disciples of Christ. Hence, whoever would be one of them, let them faithfully hold to the sacrament, not from compulsion or coerced by man, but to obey and please the Lord Christ. However, you may say, 
by the words added as often as you do it so he compels no one but forgives it but leaves it to our free choice i answer that this is true but it does not say that we must never partake indeed we the very words as often as you do imply that we should do it often and they are added because Christ wishes the sacrament to be free, not bound by to a special time like Passover, which the Jews were obligated to eat only once a year, precisely on the evening of the 14th day of the first full moon, without variation of a single day. Christ means to say, I institute a Passover supper for you, which you shall enjoy not just on this one evening of a year, but, the, but frequently whenever and wherever you will, according to everyone's opportunity and need, being bound to no special time or place. We're going to pause there. That was Statement 47. We'll pick back up next week looking at some of these remaining uh, 35 or so statements, and we'll uh, we'll breeze through those, I think, as we continue to work ourselves through the understanding of the uh, Lord's Supper through the eyes of the Lutheran faith. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have, please leave us a review. Subscribe to the show on any platform that you hear us on. Share this on your social media pages. And let's spread the word of God because that's the whole premise to the show is to expound Scripture as we do on our Friday shows. And on Tuesdays, it's to explain the Lutheran faith and the Lutheran theology through the eyes of Luther and through the early church fathers as Luther pointed himself back to and and truly understanding what the apostles wrote and taught because they were the ones who walked with Christ. And so I hope you guys enjoy this. As I said, make sure you tune into Friday's show as we work through another book in the Old Testament, currently in the Minor Prophets. Uh, if you're interested in joining any of the Bible studies, we're in the book of Romans right now. We're about halfway through chapter 8. And We've, we were talking as if we shift to an every week thing, we'll be able to work through Romans quickly or quicker. We won't have to spend a couple of years in it. Uh, but I also had thought, boy, it'd be kind of interesting to do maybe a, uh, a study on the, the journey of Jesus from the time of his birth to his baptism, to his ministry, to his death and resurrection. Like where did he walk? What did he teach? Kind of like a, uh, you know, an overlay of all the gospels a harmony of the gospels if you would that's one one study i'm considering the next study is the history of israel through the uh, history books in the old testament so we look at joshua and we will look at first second samuel first second kings first second chronicles and we would evaluate in the whole kind of overview of it like what are substantial events taking place in this time period so uh, those are things that we're considering, and uh, if you want to join us, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash undying light. For as little as a dollar a month, gets you full access to everything, and you'll have uh, be able to go back and watch all of the previous Bible studies that we've done on Romans. Uh, we've done it on Mark, and we did some on Hosea, which I, I hope that I can finish up the podcast recordings on Hosea eventually, uh, but it's not top of my key right now, if you would. So that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. God bless. We'll see you all
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.